You're listening to Leveling With, the legal podcast with a difference. This week, we're talking about cross-border business with Mark Pinder and Sasha Waldridge. Both work in our international team, with Mark being more focused on the corporate aspects of cross-border business and Sasha looking at people and immigration. You'll hear them talk about what changes they have seen in international law, the impact of Brexit and changes in workplaces across the world due to the pandemic. But first, they tell us what the phrase cross-border business means to them. What is international to me? And mm. for me, uh, what we do is we provide uh, English law advice across mm. the UK, yeah. but we have loads of businesses that come into the UK and they want advice on corporate deals, in investments, employment, immigration, which is your area. Yeah. Uh, they buy property, they buy businesses, um, they enhance their ability to operate in the market, they take advantage of tax breaks in this country when mm. they come along. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a hugely wide-ranging area. Uh, from a corporate perspective, we do... Uh, cross-border work, which means we help clients who want to do business overseas, which is a phrase mm-hmm. that I've tried very hard never to use, <laughs> and I've just done it, because England alone or the UK looks at uh, something outside the island as overseas. Yeah. But if you're, in, um, if you're in Germany, overseas doesn't exist as a concept. So I keep That's teaching people point. not to That's do that. Point. I fall into it all the time. Um, so we do inward investment work yeah. where people come in and want English advice and we do external work where our clients in the UK want to go and do business all around the world, mm-hmm. provide them with legal resource, contacts, connections. And then occasionally we do project management work where we have businesses um, from, say, the US who want to acquire in Europe or the Middle mm-hmm. East or Asia. We, we either project manage the whole thing because we're in a better time zone yeah, okay. or often the legal system that they choose to use for that is English law because yeah. it's a safe, fair concept. Okay. Um, and are there any kind of trends that you see in that? Like any, you know, is it the US particularly like English law or is it a whole, is that a global thing? What's the... Um, one of the trends is that a lot of people are frightened of using US law uh-huh. because of the way litigious? they... Yeah, litigious, yeah. punitive uh-huh. damages and that uh-huh. concept. Yeah. Um, English law has been used and established... I mean, for a long, long time, it's mm-hmm. the stable legal system in the world. Yeah. And notwithstanding our political scenarios at the moment, it mm-hmm. still is the stable legal system in the world. So yeah. it's used on so many transactions. It's used in the international shipping world. It's used for M and A deals all over the world. Yeah. Um, so Brexit had a material impact on the value of our currency mm-hmm. almost overnight. Yeah, absolutely. Which made everything in the UK much cheaper. Mm-hmm. So we've seen a lot more inward investment, particularly from the US, yeah. uh, because the dollar's been very strong for yeah. a long time. Recently, that's tipped a bit. Yeah. But the US uh, market is very vibrant. Their inflation rate right now is 3.3%. Yeah, okay, well. And if you compare it with ours, we should have yeah. a 10. <laughs> so it's a, it's a good source of opportunity for us, and it's a very good source of opportunity for them to take advantage of these currency issues, which have impacted both the UK and, of course, Europe. Yeah. And you see that, you know, since Brexit, obviously, if they've got more US investment, do you see that as... Um, you know, are we seeing a political prioritisation of that sort of thing? Obviously, we talk about trade deals and going kind of beyond our European partners. So do you think that's going to hold out? Uh, good question. Trade deals in with the US are going to be virtually impossible to do. It will take a very long time. Okay. Um, trade deals with uh, within Europe. I mean, in a sense, we are already trading with Europe in much the same way we did before, apart from the bureaucratic problems that Brexit yeah. created. 
Um, I, my expectation is that that will ease mm -hmm. maybe over the next three to four years, mm -hmm. depending on what happens in the UK and our politics and our elections. Yeah. <laughs> but we have got huge roadblocks in bureaucracy at the moment with, yeah. within Europe, and it's our biggest trading partner, so we need to ease that. So how, how has the immigration system changed since Brexit? Because, I, I mean, I know we loosely followed the Australian system with mm -hmm. the points. I'm not sure if we followed them or they followed us, because <laughs> yeah. I think we had it in existence all the time. Yeah. So how has it changed? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, as we talked about political and, and movement of people and all those sorts of things. And um, fundamentally, actually, the UK immigration system isn't hugely unchanged from mm -hmm. where we were previously. There's been lots of talk, uh, a bit of a political soundbite, really, about, oh, we want an Australian points-based system. Um, the Australian points-based system is designed specifically to increase migration into Australia because they have a reasonably small population and, and, and lots of emigration. So um, actually interesting that the UK saw that as a, something to follow where typically or traditionally we've seen a political stance trying to reduce migration into the UK. So those things are slightly at odds with one another, but fundamentally, yes, we do have a system which is points-based. For business, that's great because it provides certainty. If you can tick a box, you can meet the salary requirement. You've got the right sort of job that you're hiring for. You know you're going to get the visa. So it's which... actually easy to do. In some I mean, respect, yeah. The press are making out that it's actually very difficult. Yeah, it particularly is. Particularly with the I mean, NHS. I think, I think it's kind of difficult to get your head around in mm. some respects. I mean, obviously, there's lots of organisations in the UK. Backbone is SME-sized businesses. Mm. And obviously, they don't have dedicated resources that can just spend time getting through all the, you know, the technicalities of, of things. So actually, the, the, since Brexit, we've stripped down some of the requirements of the, reg, of the, mm. of the rules and, and the visa processing so that, um, in theory, it's kind of easier to bring people in, but it is incredibly expensive, which really focuses the mind, especially at the moment when all businesses are feeling the squeeze, have yeah. they got resource available? Do you um, think the system that we've got in place could be massively improved, or is it basically quite a good system, just a bit bureaucratic? I think there's elements elements of both there, as with anything. I mean, I think fundamentally there's a reasonably good infrastructure. There's a good element of certainty, as I say, um, in terms of ticking a box and getting people through the process. So we've seen a lot of work that Home Office have done to use technology and innovate and make it all, mm. you know, much more consumer friendly, actually. So making it a customer centric service, which is great. I think what probably what needs work and it remains an ongoing debate and discussion is, you know, what is our policy and what who, who are the sorts mm. of people we want to be encouraging to come into the UK? And obviously, there are lots of concerns about are we getting the right people in and, you know, are they going to drive innovation? And I know um, the Chancellor's announcing um, plans today around making the UK a really, um, you know, technology-based, you know, economy, and that's going to be fantastic. Yeah, I, read, I read an interesting article recently which basically said that the UK will be almost unrecognisable in 30 years. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're an incredibly diverse country as it is. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I've got family in Sweden. Yeah. And Sweden's going through a huge upheaval right now because yeah. they, they actually brought in a huge number of immigrants and mm -hmm. they don't know how to deal with it. Mm. And the other complication they've got is if you're bringing in immigrants who are used to desert-like conditions and you mm. go to Sweden, which is used to <laughs> which is freezing, it makes a, it has a huge impact. But on your technology point, it's interesting, one of the areas close to my heart, Formula One, mm -hmm. is that what well, we're the leading country in the world for Formula One. All of the, all the major teams are based in the UK. Yeah. All the technology comes from that. And yeah. the, the whole driver for the industry, the car industry, not just uh, in the racing industry, is coming out of here. Yeah. And I think it's underestimated how good we are at doing that stuff. Yeah, it can be. I think definitely, you know, we kind of want to shout about our achievements. And I think, but what's increasingly interesting is, you know, obviously we've got, you know, hubs of these specialities mm -hmm. and things, but 
um you know we've we've spoken before i know about you know this borderless world of work now yes. and we have a lot of us clients mm-hmm. and when us clients come into um europe particularly have fundamentally different employment rules mm-hmm. it makes a, a huge difference absolutely so trying to explain the protections that are built into eu law which of course we've adopted mm. Is, is quite an experience, and yeah. a lot of American <laughs> businessmen find it very hard why they can't just hire and fire people at will, which yeah. is how they work. Absolutely. Uh, unlike our system, which is super protective. Yeah. And do you think we have, do you think we'll deviate a little bit away from Europe on that, given Brexit, or do you think we'll pretty much stay the same? Um, I think it's, it's really up for debate, and it, it is interesting because obviously the, there's great scope there for us now mm. to, to kind of move away. I mean, I think fundamentally we need to remember that. You know, the UK, we've talked about the strength of our, you know, our, our, our history of being strong lawmakers. The UK really wrote a lot. We're really responsible for driving the lawmaking in Europe at the time. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of those ideas are fundamentally British, albeit obviously there have been iterations and development of that, which, you know, are potentially more employee centric in Europe, even more so mm-hmm. than the UK. So there's different ends of the spectrum then from the US, you know, they say hire and fire quite easy. UK is maybe a bit of a middle ground. Europe's a bit more protectionist. I was recently in the US and talked to, oh, I don't know, 15 or 20 different companies. Mm-hmm. And they are having real trouble getting their employees back into mm. business. And some of the law firms I was at, yeah. we went around them and they were empty. Yeah, and, absolutely. And I was very surprised that there would be such a difference there. You'd think that would not be the case. Yeah. It's a remarkable difference. Yeah, and I think people are kind of grappling with it, aren't they? I think there was a, a CBI report came out this morning, actually. I was listening on the on the radio and they were saying that you know, you know, secretly all these business owners are desperate for people to come back into the office and um and you know they're ultimately saying, well, you know, maybe our you know our slower economy at the moment is really suffering because we're not all back in cities and bases and, and doing all those things. But um at the same time when you then do interviews with employees and what do they want, actually there's some really stark numbers that people demand flexibility now. Like ultimately, you know, Lots of businesses did struggle through the pandemic, but some really flourished. It didn't require an office central way of working. Um, so I think it's really opened up people's minds. But I think ultimately people crave social interaction and there's only so many Zooms and team calls that people want to do. But You need a balance, of course. Absolutely. And as yeah. we're doing in our own new office in London, yeah. we, we have some better open spaces and a much... Yeah. I think a much more relaxed environment, which mm-hmm. hopefully will persuade people to come in more than they perhaps would want to. Yeah. But the biggest challenge, I think, is actually how you train and teach people. Because mm-hmm. in, certainly in our line of work, you need face-to-face contact. Yeah. You need the ability to sit and actually go through agreements and documents together. And yeah. it's much harder to do that over a, over a video. Yeah. Much, much harder. Definitely. And so and I, I'm also noticing a difference in approach in the way particularly some of the younger members of the team are actually interacting with clients. If you aren't there in an office presence and you aren't there sitting around the table, mm. you lose that ability to dialogue in the, in, the, in the way that certainly when I was growing up, it was all face-to-face or nothing. Yeah, definitely. You know, and it, it's, a, it's a big challenge. And it, again, going bringing back to the US because we're talking international, yeah. um, they found that to be even more varied. And I had one one particular meeting with a partner in a law firm who said that the challenge they had is even some of their partners had actually moved out of the state yeah. and moved and lived in another state. Yeah. Really difficult to build teams when it's like that. Yeah. And so they're suffering. Yeah, I can really see that. And I think ultimately, you know, it's all about balance and, and people will find where they're comfortable and there'll be probably then bigger discrepancies in, in company cultures. You know, those that really want to do remote, they'll, you know, maybe group together in some respects. So different cultures will will change. But I think 
what is interesting and what's exciting, I think, is obviously we've got this, you know, the ability to use technology and the fact that we were all managed to pivot and, and change how we worked really rapidly. Like we probably achieved 50 years worth of progress in about two months, which was but phenomenal. How, how quickly have you forgotten the COVID days? Well, I mean, I, we true. were talking about it last night and it's, <laughs> it's just like, uh, you know, it seems like years ago. It does. Yeah. But I think in a way, like we can, you know, it's always about taking the best out of these scenarios. I think, you know, we as businesses internationally, like everyone's looking to new markets that's all around the world. And obviously the traditional, you know, whether it was a Western focus or what's going on in Asia, you know, actually like South America, that's a whole new market. Continent of Africa, completely, you know, largely untapped. Yes. And technology getting access there, people being able to get insights and information. Um, I think it's really exciting in terms of accessing like whole new labor forces, but whole new ideas because people have got different ways of working. And I think actually, you know, businesses will be savvy to start using the technology, but, you know, travelling, getting back, getting over there in person, all that's becoming easier again now. It's becoming easier, but it's twice as expensive as Very I noticed true. recently. And it was, uh, it's interesting for me as well. I was looking at, um, <clears throat> thinking about the internationalisation and how it was perceived and globalisation, I think is the better word, mm. pre-COVID, mm. during COVID, immediately after COVID and now now. Mm. So if you look at the world pre-COVID, it was all global. Mm-hmm. You know, America's output was all global. Mm. Then COVID hit and everybody internalised. Yeah. All the politicians internalised. It was all <laughs> me, me, me. How can I defend my country? Mm. How can I build everything within the country? I don't need to bring anybody in. Let's close the borders. Mm. And then it opened up again and there was this reluctance. And now I think it's drifting back to how it was uh, pre-COVID. Mm. Um, I think travel needs to be cheaper. It's yeah. really difficult. Mm. And then you have the conflict between the need to travel and the climate issue, yeah, which, of course, definitely. is a, a huge fundamental problem in itself. Yeah. And I think it's obviously something that business is really taking on board. And I think it's, you know, probably thinking back to how we were pre-pandemic. And, pre- and it's probably just being smarter about the travel that we do. It's not that it's not going to be mm. necessary, but maybe doing it in a different way. Does it need to be as far? Can we, you know, regionalise certain things? Maybe that's a good way forward to limit our climate impact. I watched a TV programme last night. Mm-hmm. And it was talking about connecting the uh, European continent with Africa. Yeah. So it was a quite a technical conversation about how to build a bridge yeah. across the Strait of Gibraltar. Mm-hmm. And it made me think, A, why can't we do that? Because that would actually massively change things. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, they then got into the details and, and all the whole story in the whole article was about why you couldn't do it as opposed to why you could do it. Yeah. And my philosophy is very much a, a can-do attitude, as yeah. you know. Yeah. And I, it, it was, I thought, remarkable that over a period of 50 years, clever scientists had come up with solutions mm-hmm. and then politicians had trashed it. Yeah. Or the money was too much or there, mm-hmm. were too, there was too much uncertainty or the, the water's too deep or the current's too strong. Yeah. So don't you think that's kind of what's happening in the political world right now? There's a there's a lot of uh, people's attitudes very positive, and mm. then the politicians are bringing it down to earth again because of short cycles in the political world. Mm. Getting stuff done is really difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously you know naturally, yes, shorter political cycles drive drive approaches. Um, I mean, I think that's an age old problem. Being realistic about it, but I think obviously you know. It, it, we're in a period of revolution ultimately you know the industrial revolution happened we're now in a, in a digital revolution everyone's trying to get comfortable with you know whether it's you know I think about my parents getting comfortable with social media you know I'm really excited about driverless cars other people are petrified by that so you know ev- people adjust to change in different ways 
Um, and I think there's also, you know, yeah, ultimately drivers about, you know, am I going to stay in power? What's going to suit people mm. now? What do we need? And obviously we see that example, climate change. We've got lots of information there saying this needs to happen and everyone goes, yeah, that needs to happen. But it can't be a priority today because we need to look at that. So I think ultimately there's going to be a change around how we are dealing with things because ultimately, because we're so interconnected now internationally around the world, like it's going to require a collaborative effort. Um, and obviously we've seen progress on those about, you know, COP27, COP28, whatever that might be, um, recognising there needs to be more collaboration. Um, but usually there are kind of key markers that will then drive a big push on that. You only have to look at the discussion around ozone levels, you know, a few years ago. They you plugged know, the hole. Then, they, yeah. you know, we worked collaboratively yes. globally yeah. and, you know, we can achieve great things. So I think in a way, obviously, at the moment, people have had a very difficult period of time, um, pandemic, Brexit, all those different things. It takes time for people to come out yeah. of that, to feel the positive optimism um, but it will come. It always yeah, and I, does. I was going to say, strangely, I think the um, situation in Ukraine has actually brought a lot of countries together that would never have been together and collaborated in a way that they wouldn't have done. Mm. So that's one benefit from this awful situation. Mm. And the other I was thinking, as we sort of bring this to a close, was actually mm. looking at what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the, the European and Americans are still working very closely together but the real drivers coming from China and mm. the Far East. Mm. And then I think the next driver after that will be Africa, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see how Africa develops. I mean, it's a huge population and a very fast-growing population, especially if you look at yeah. Nigeria, for example. Mm-hmm. Is our technology going to seep down there and help them develop in a way that they haven't yet mm. um, and really accelerate what's happened? And we have accelerated from, as you say, the Industrial Revolution through to now at a phenomenal speed. Mm. But the last 30 years have been even more phenomenal. Yeah. So the question for me is, is the next 30 years going to be equally phenomenal? I mean, Big I mean question. I'm going to say yes, absolutely. Yeah. But I think that's really exciting. And I think actually, if anything, rather than, you know, necessarily our technology going there to, you know, to help to help other countries develop, I think actually we've got loads to learn from them because I think maybe some of what we would say traditionally lesser developed countries are naturally more innovative because they've maybe got further to catch up, so to speak. So I've seen really interesting moves. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm an immigration expert, but different countries really thinking, you know, outside the box, right? what can we do to make the most of the situation we're in? Um, Nomad visas are a really great example of that. And it used to be there was maybe four or five countries that would have these nomad visas allowing people to work from anywhere you know, it's a real revolution in immigration policy in terms of letting people in, creating tax breaks, all those sorts of things. But actually, it's been some of those smaller countries that can pivot much quicker and are happy to go with the flow. And, um, you know, industry colleagues have talked to me about, you know, in the Middle East and um, the UAE, for example, and they're going, yeah, we're just going to come up with this policy and we're going to give it a go and just trying things out rather than having to, I think we're really sometimes constraining ourselves by going, we've got to plan everything, we've got to consult everybody, da, 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 da. And, it can take a long time. And actually, by the time we get something live, it's already too late. It's already five years too old. So in a way, I think maybe you know, different countries or different sectors we can see, they can pivot a lot quicker. And actually, I think we can learn from that so we don't get left behind with yes. our kind of, you know, our commitment to infrastructure. Now, everyone needs rules and process. And I think those things are important to keep checks and balances. But, um, you know, 
sometimes we can we can mix it up and learn from them as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would like to see our government spend more time thinking about how we can actually and use our technology and skill and experience in countries that need it mm. and actually see it as a collaboration for the future so that we don't just look insular. Yeah. We actually go out and really help build and develop those other countries and then we can work together yeah. and we all benefit from that. Absolutely, yeah, completely about all our community collaboration. Perfect. I think it's perfect for the new future, definitely. That was Mark Pinder and Sasha Waldridge talking about cross-border business. Tune in next week for another episode of Leveling With. This podcast has been produced by Burkitts. The content of this podcast is for general information only. It is not and should not be taken as legal advice. If you require any other information in relation to this podcast, please contact us in the first instance via our website, www.burkitts.co.uk.